Hey everybody and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this time the recorder is running and so uh, we'll go ahead and get started and uh, welcome our panel. On our panel today we have Aaron Patterson. Aaron is on the Ruby core team the, or at least has commit rights to the Ruby and Rails as well. Um, he works for AT&T Interactive and he blogs at tenderlovemaking.com. Welcome Aaron. Thank you. We also have James Edward Gray. He is the author of the TextMate book. Uh, he ran Ruby Quiz for a while, wrote the Faster CSV library, and uh, has contributed in a lot of other ways to the Ruby community. Welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be back again. <laughs> and uh, we also have Josh Susser. Josh is... Uh, <laughs> I, I drew a blank again and I closed my notes. Um, he okay, I'm, uh, He's I'm, one I'm of the perfect. organizers of the Gogoruko. That's right. I got it. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> he's made some contributions to Rails and blogs at blog.hasmanythrough.com. That's why I write these things down. Sorry. Right. And, and, and so it's not weird for people. I actually do have a job, but it's, it's like a little startup thing, so it's too early to talk about right now. Someday, though. Yeah. The, but anyway, hello from sunny San Francisco. Yeah, the, the early startup stuff's kind of fun, so... Uh, Maybe we'll have to talk about that one of these times. I'm Charles Maxwood. I am the host of the Rails Coach podcast, the Teach Me to Code podcast and screencasts. And uh, I am a freelance uh, Ruby and Rails developer at Intentional Excellence Productions. And you can find all my stuff at teachmetocode.com. So can can I share our embarrassing guffaw with the audience now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so we just did... 10 minutes plus of a Ruby Rhodes episode uh, without having the recorder on. So this is like time traveling for the rest of us. We've all lived this moment already. We've gone back in the DeLorean. Aaron is going to tell the same bad jokes. Believe me, we're suffering for our art, okay? It's just what I wanted everybody to know. Yeah, but the jokes, the jokes will be twice as funny this time, right? That's I'm sure that's what it is, yeah. because we've heard them <laughs> twice, right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> All right, so go ahead. Let's get into this. Okay, so should we give the brief recap of where we were? Well, we, we, yeah, sure. So we, so we started with a definition and and then rapidly went to field. So, but I'll, I'll try my definition again, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that technical debt, um, if you want to take on debt deliberate, deliberately, like you're going out for a loan in the finance world, uh, it's deferring development until a point when you can better afford the time to do it. So, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to write as many tests up front as, as you think you should, or uh, maybe you want to use some quick hack that uh, will solve 80% of your problems, and then you defer the rest of it until later when you can better afford the time to do it right. Right. I, I have a question for you, Josh. Um, yes, sir? How, yes, how do you, so how do you distinguish um, accruing technical debt from just doing agile development because you always want to do like when you're doing agile development you just want to do the, basically the least amount of work possible to get get the result you want right would you say that um, I think that's part of agile development the I, I guess do you, see, you see where I'm going with this like where do you draw the line between doing the least amount possible and it just turning into technical debt like how do you make that decision well, so you, my you, opinion I, on that is that maybe you don't know you're accruing technical debt at the time. 
Like, for example, oh, no, I, you don't... no, 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 no. There's definitely cases where you do know it. You know, oh, for, oh for... yeah, I, I agree. But I mean, like, when you get like three upgrades behind and stuff like that, I, I don't know that you you intentionally made the call. You know, like, you know, oh, we're we're just going to eat this technical debt right now or something. Right, and yeah, so that's the, that's not the deliberate technical debt or the intentional. That's the inadvertent, and. And, and there's definitely cases where that happens, and that's either, you know, it's you know either you weren't paying attention or you're, I'm not sure what, but the, the but but in in terms of Aaron's question, I think that there are definitely times when you want to slack a little on writing the best code you can write. So you know, say you have a, you, okay, we really got to get this product release out because. You know, we're we're gonna you know time to market's important. So let's just skimp on our tests or not write our acceptance tests or uh, maybe we'll just use an old package of the so- an old library that we know isn't going to work on all the browsers we want, but it'll work on most of the ones that we want. So so you you do essentially a half-assed job, and, you know, because there's more considerations. There's considerations that are more important than getting it done right. And then you come back later when you can afford the time, and and fix it. And so, so are there any trade-offs that are worth it other than time trade-offs? Because that's what we're talking about ultimately is, you know, we don't have time now, so we're going to take the time later. You know, are, are there any other reasons for accruing technical debt other than time constraints? I, I, I guess know, I think our, our currency I is think time, every, right? I think everything eventually devolves down to time, but in, in, a, in a more... Uh, proximal wit thing there may, maybe it's expertise maybe you don't have anyone on your team who knows how to do flash animations so you know you just do something you know quick and dirty and something else instead of going through all the process of learning how to do flash mm-hmm. so that does that does end up becoming a time consideration in the in the big picture but in the small picture it's just because you don't have the right person on board right and you you don't have anyone with the time to to learn how to do it themselves Right. right. Can there be advantages to technical debt, though? Like, for example, could we say, hey, let's do this so-so implementation of this feature using this library that we're pretty sure isn't going to meet all our needs, put it up there, see what the users tell us they want, and then go from that and iterate forward? Even though we know we're, we know we're probably building an implementation that, that we're totally okay with chunking in the future to rewrite the way we really want it. Right. Well, the, the advantages are, I mean, the, the advantages are absolutely like Josh says, it's time to market, right? I mean, that's, that's what it is, period, is you need, to get the, you need to get the product out there as quickly as possible. So you're hoping that, you know, if you, if you get it out soon enough, you can buy time later using money that you've earned, Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's exactly it. And, and if you're a if you're an adherent to the lean startup philosophy, uh, mm-hmm. that that what startups do is that they prove out new business models. You know, a, a startup is a is a a, a a business for for converting money into a new business model. I guess somebody said. The, mm-hmm. But the 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 business of a startup is to figure out what business they're in and to and to prove that. And, and writing a really airtight code base is not the fastest way to get there. And if you're going to put a lot of effort into writing you know, good test coverage and making sure that everything is going to 
be awesome and easily deployable everywhere, that sort of thing. That you know, you have automation for everything that you do. That's a lot of effort to put into something that is not proven as a moneymaker. So mm-hmm. if you want, to, so if you want to cut corners on all those details and things that I would consider really important for the longevity of a code base, it's okay to do that. If you're, con- I think it's great to do that if you're consciously making the decision. Just like it's great to go out and get a mortgage to buy a house. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, if you don't have a million dollars sitting around and you want to buy a house in San Francisco, you got to take a mortgage out. And but. You know, hopefully, you know, you work for a startup and a couple years later you have a million dollars to pay it off, right? <laughs> well, one thing that, that comes to mind, too, with uh, James's question is not just the, the the time constraints or even the, you know, the lean startup, you know, where you don't want to invest a ton of time into something that you don't know is going to pay off. But even if it does pay off, it may not pay off in the way that you think it ought to. And so by putting something in that works for, you know, 75% of your target market, and, you know, just kind of making sure that it works well enough, you may find out that you need to pivot it just a little bit to uh, make up the difference and make things kind of roll in this new direction. And so if you spend a lot of time building in these other features and, and tighten down, tightening down all of the different screws that you need to get that feature in, you may find out later that you, you didn't need it. Yeah, but I think, there's, I think there's a huge difference between going into a project and saying, all right, all right, you know, um, we know that we're cutting corners here and probably like we may have to change it, but we're okay with throwing stuff away or we know that we're going to have, you know, basically planned technical debt. I think that there's a huge difference between planned and unplanned technical debt. Like if you know that you're getting into that, then you can kind of plan for it in the future. The worst is when you find out you have, you know, you're getting this inadvertent technical debt and you have to deal with that later down, later on down the line. That's, mm-hmm. That is the worst. And, and and the worst is when you're assuming someone else's debt. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and this is where the government jokes come back in, the ones that we didn't record, right? I couldn't believe we, I couldn't believe we didn't get pregnancy jokes off of Aaron's planned and unplanned. You know? <laughs> so so J- James was talking about a project that, that he was doing now. James, do you want to talk about the, the debt issue on that? No, I already I told that. I already told that story once. It's lost all the appeal for me. <laughs> well, I had a I'll say that. All right, all right. I'll, I'll tell it. So um, I'm working on a project right now where um, my job this month is to rewrite a 40,000-line Rails app. And it was written for Rails 1, 2. Uh, and it, it's been kind of brought forward. It was technically running on, like, 2, 2 when I got it. But... But even there, it's mostly just using one, two stuff, and and Rails is still accepting it with a lot of deprecated warnings. Um, And then they want me to bring it up to Rails 3, and it was written in the 1.86 era, and they want it running on 1.9 and stuff. So so it's a very large amount of technical debt, but the application is very complicated, and, and some of the things it does are are very involved and so I, I'm spending, it, it looks like it's going to take me right about a month as far as how far I am and how far I have to go. Uh, so they basically had to pay me for a month to just sit there and go through it and, and get the whole thing running on a modern Ruby and Rails um, and it's, that's my job right now. I, I have to stop you real quick. If, uh, if James isn't here next week, it's because he either was committed or slit his wrists. Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's uh. <laughs> so, so, so James, I I um I feel for you. 
I I had a very similar experience earlier this year. We had a we had a client come in and they had a 20,000 line rails application with no test coverage whatsoever. And I should I should have mentioned this mm-hmm. one did sort of have tests, sort of. When I ran them, about half of them failed. And I looked through them and evaluated them, and I decided that actually I didn't think the tests were worth saving, so I threw them out right off the bat. Yeah. Whoa. Did, did, how did you replace them? So what I did, um, I, I did in a... I did it a different way this time, and and I guess time will tell if this was smart or stupid. Um, I made a new application, a brand new untouched application in Rails 3 as the app. And what I'm doing is I'm slowly bringing things over. So I'm going through the models. Now, now keep in mind, this probably sounds a bit anal and, and maybe slow and stuff. But keep in mind, I mean, we're talking, there's some models in here that are over a thousand lines or some controllers oh, that are the man. same way. And and I I wouldn't say that it's normal for me to get more than three or four lines before I see something that probably needs cleaning up. So I, I am literally reading every file line by line as I bring it over. Plus that has the advantage of familiarizing me with the code and stuff. So I, you know, I see things it can do. And it, it has tons of problems like copy and paste programming and, and things like that that I've, you know, I, I have the opportunity to clean up and stuff. So, so I'm slowly uh, bringing it over as I go bit by bit and putting them into the new things. So I just recreate the new models and that gives me a bare test suite, you know, right? As Rails always would, um, and then you know, as as I have time, obviously, I will not launch with you know anything remotely near good test coverage. But you know, uh, I, I didn't have that anyway, so I didn't really give up anything, you know. So you had technical debt, not not only in your implementation, but also your tests. Yeah, the tests were pretty much worthless. I looked through them and. They they just I, I didn't feel like they made me confident about anything in the app, so I just ditched them. <laughs> the, wow. So my my project w- sounded very similar. Um, we opted to just do a full rewrite. It was it was twenty thousand lines of code. There was a lot of duplication in the code. There were there was a lot of very poor code in the application, and it looked like for the functionality that was going on, it was like three to 5,000 lines of code, maybe. And so I talked to the client and convinced them that that was the best way to, to fix the application. Because it would have taken months to go back and put in decent test coverage and fix things and refactor and upgrade it to Rails 3. So we started over and we were informed a lot by the old code. But it was it was a lot of work. But, but you know, six six or seven weeks later, we had about 3,000 lines of code that implemented about 80 or 85% of the functionality of the old application, mm-hmm. and everybody was happy. Yeah, we went through something similar at uh, one of my past jobs, and I was the project lead um, pretty much right after we went over the cliff, so you know, I, I just kept us falling in the wrong direction. And uh, after... After not too long, um, we wound up going to the CEO and saying, look, we got to scrap this and rewrite it. And, uh, you know, it it turned out to be a really 
a really good thing, uh, both from the perspective of, yeah, we got a whole lot cleaner code, a lot better test coverage and things like that. But we also then understood the problem domain. And that was the problem initially was that we would build something it wouldn't be right because we didn't understand the problem domain. And so effectively what we would wind up doing is we'd wind up, you know, rehashing the code over and over and over again. And we wound up with all of this extra garbage in there that would break stuff when we, when we got to where we needed to be. So, you know, the rewrite there, it did, it, it, it helped us. It's, it's not a complete, it's not a complete loss when you have to do a rewrite because you wind up with the domain knowledge, if nothing else. I don't. I don't think that rewriting is. I mean, I, I'm not sure why we make such a big deal out of it because, you know, you have to do like, um, no matter we have you have some technical debt that you have to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. And you have and you, you have choices you that you have to make. Payment. You make a balloon payment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But yeah, you have to make you have to make a decision though as to whether or not whether or not you you know you you have to go in and take a look at it and figure out how much time it would take you to either fix the current code base or just completely rewrite it. But it doesn't matter because in the end you're both you, you know, theoretically you're ending up with the same the same functionality either either direction you take. You just have to choose the one that it has the least amount of time. So, I mean, I don't really know why it matters so much. Or, or, or you could just raise the debt ceiling. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. But I hear that that takes an act of Congress. <laughs> One that we yeah. might not get. So what do you do? These when are you the same jokes. No. Yeah, this is what what you. I'll tell you exactly what you do. You issue one trillion dollar coins. I was reading an article on CNN today. We can issue trillion dollar coins. <laughs> I was listening. That's to, awesome. I think it was the Planet Money podcast. It was either that or This American Life, and they were talking about all of the dollar coins that they have sitting in a vault somewhere that not, the banks don't want because the their customers don't want them. They just want the bills. So they have the coins. They're just sitting around somewhere. Hmm. Can we? Is it possible for us to issue more issue more debt on a project? Can we do that? Issue is there, more debt on a project? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, is there a point? Like, at what point do you, you know? Can, can you I mean, keep like, pushing forward? Like, let's say you're on a project and you know you have a lot of technical debt on it. Do you, like, how do you push forward and continue the debt? I, I'm just curious if we kept this going. You just okay, keep okay, writing so, code. Well, to, to, con to continue with a painful metaphor or a strained metaphor, who's your creditor? I guess who's your who? business people? Yeah, the company that hired you, I guess. Yeah, so, so I, I, re I, re so paying off debt and you know servicing your debt, I think is a is a good thing to talk about. I I had a project earlier this year where uh, it was built on an old version of Data Mapper. It had started off as a Merb application on Data Mapper, which uh, was pretty hot a couple years ago, and so it was a about a two year old code base. And we kept talking about the Data Mapper tax because you know I I and my pair partner would work on this together and and in a Given week, we figured we spent twenty to twenty-five percent of our time just dealing with data mapper issues. Because I, I don't know if you're familiar with with the history of data mapper, but there was a, a fairly significant rewrite between zero point nine and one point zero, which made it really difficult. It basically dropped a lot of technical debt on people who were using zero nine. So, so suddenly, I guess that was like 
the data map routine printing new money. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the, the, it, it suddenly meant that everyone who was on 0 0.9 had a huge, um, huge amount of work they had to do to, to upgrade to 1.0. So a lot of people just chose not to do it and started accruing interest on their debt at that point. So when we stepped in a year or two later and started working on this application, there was a huge amount of debt around it. That, and that meant that pretty much anything that we had to do that touched the database took us 20 or 25% longer than we felt it should have. So in a given week, we would spend upwards of an entire day just dealing with the weirdness of Data Mapper and how broken it was in that old version and, and, our, and its inability to do things the way we thought it should work. So the, that tax was very real. And when we talked to the product manager about it, we were, and we were able to quantify that and say, the last three weeks, we've spent upwards of a day a week just dealing with weird data mapper issues. That gave him the numbers that he could use to figure out how much money he should put into paying people to migrate them from data mapper to active record. Hmm. So, that's, so that, that, that's, a very, that's a very financially savvy way to take a look at dealing with your technical debt. You know, something interesting, I guess, um, sometimes it's hard to see debt as it's coming up for how expensive it really is. Like, for example, as a guy who spends all day every day right now converting from Rails 1.2 to Rails 3.0, I, I didn't feel like, you know, at the time that the Rails upgrades were particularly painful to me debt-wise. But um, having done it now for a while, uh I'm shocked at coming from one two to three o exactly how much I'm having to do. It's a lot. I mean, uh, you know, the the queries changed from you know it, it used to be find everything, then it was first and all, but they still had basically the same parameters as as the finders did, you know, and then it was Rails 3's, uh you know uh, syntax with the the methods and stuff. And I mean, just tons of little things that uh, the ERB changes, you know, that, that uh, with the way forms uh, are interpolated into documents and things like that. And just, uh, I, I think these guys had a knack for using active record methods that never caught on. Like uh, they like to do instead of, you know, model.find. Uh, they like to do model with brackets, and I guess Active Record used to support that way back when, and you could just put the ID in the brackets, and it was like a find, kind of like you were indexing a hash, but apparently it doesn't support that anymore. So I, I'm, you know, changing all those to finds and things like that. But uh, I, I, I'm surprised and taken aback by how much work it is just to move from you know Rails one two to. Uh, Rails three, it's a it's a non-trivial thing, and uh, you know if you throw Ruby one nine on top of it too, it's it's an even bigger uh, scenario. So I, I want to jump in here, and we've we've kind of talked about uh, quantifying the costs, and we talked about uh, you know James was, James and uh, Josh both were talking about uh, upgrade costs, but what what other types of technical debt are there? Uh, you know, I, other than just upgrade costs, you know, what what else do we see? We we said that we can see them in the tests. Are there any other examples that you guys have? Um, I can think of one as um, application features stuff that you stuff that you provide to end users that may not necessarily be 
core to your business. So I think like business people can accrue debt, but I don't know that that's technical debt necessarily. Mm-hmm. Does that make well, sense? Sure, ra- well, sure, doesn't Rails have the same problem? I mean, at times Rails has provided features that then later they decided were a bad idea to put in the core of Rails because they were beholden to those users using those features and that didn't really make sense for them and they've you know yanked them out or whatever. So sure, I think that exists in, in software too, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- um, I think when compati- it- compatibility. Compatibility is a kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, as, as new platforms come out, and you don't jump on those platforms. Maybe uh, you know you, you you know that's some debt for you, or uh, maybe you choose not to try and support all the platforms. But then one of them becomes popular. Right. Yeah, but fortunately, I mean, fortunately, with software development, we can at least use uh, version numbers and stuff to our advantage, right? So we can we have a we have a system for we have a system for getting rid of this debt or for getting you know phasing it out over time and getting rid of it. But when you have like an application that you're providing to end users, I mean, it's difficult to say, you know, difficult to set these deadlines with other people. It's not as, you know, hard and fast as the the uh, version schemes we have. I guess that's a so double-edged much. sword though, really, because you can take away features anytime you want. <laughs> right. Right. So one one other uh, technical debt that we ran into in a couple of the jobs that I've worked on um, is just uh, coupled code where you have, I mean, it got to the point where you would touch one piece of code and something would fail in something else that was seemingly completely unrelated. And the reason was is because it touched this uh, portion of code, which touched this other portion of code, which touched this other portion of code, which touched the portion of code that you changed, and it messed something up clear on the other side of the app. Chuck, show us on the doll where the app touched you. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to pay for that one. (laughs) Oh, man. This episode isn't going to go too well for me, is it? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I think think you... Go ahead, Josh. Good. Um, so, so li- library dependencies or de- dependencies are a, are I think a big source of, of debt, technical debt. The, um, you know, you're you're dependent on a library, and and this was a this was a big problem with like the Ruby one nine adoption, uh, and and you, or upgrading to Rails three, where you were using gems or plugins that were you know, critical to your application. But they hadn't been upgraded to work with Ruby one nine or with Rails three, in, in one case or the other, and so you're stuck until you either, you know, help upgrade those dependencies and get them running on Ruby one nine, or or figure out some other way to implement the feature without using that. So yeah, I think that's an excellent point that I'm very curious about because. Um, that that has been the biggest thing in this application for me. I mean, I I would say I know there is one model that had nine plugin dependencies, and and I've seen that a lot. I would say if I had to add them all up, this thing probably was dependent on about thirty libraries, and um, it, obviously they were all what's hot in Ruby one eight six, and you know like you said around the one nine era 
we basically picked new horses because we had to rewrite them all anyway, you know, so, um, so most of them are gone. So I, I'm wondering, at what point was that technical debt incurred? Was it incurred when they decided to use the library, or was it incurred when that library quit being maintained? Hmm. I have an interesting thought on the same, or in the same vein anyway, and, and that is is that this app, I'm assuming, if you had a server out there that had Ruby 1.8 and Rails 1.2 on it, would would run fine, you know, forever, right? So, I mean... Is- no, no. Um, I, I mean, I guess I see what you're saying. What if that app had been perfectly stable and was running? And I have seen apps like that before where it's running fine on the old stuff and, and you know, they, they don't really need it to upgrade. Um, but that wasn't the case for this business. Their problem is... This was kind of a side project for them that they had held on to for a couple of years and had never really decided if it was going to become big for them. And now they've decided it is going to become big for them. So this basically started by them coming to me and saying, okay, we need to add this, this, and this. And I looked at it and said, well, you know, I, it, I can do that, you know, but it's very old and I can't use a lot of modern tools on it that would be, you know, make it easier for me to do that. So, you know, it's it's time to decide if this is a long-term project, then then maybe it's realistic to bring it up to current standards, you know. Right. So I guess what I'm submitting is that, you know, in either case, whether it was running fine before or not, you know, maybe their technical debt was incurred when they determined that they needed to upgrade it because again they weren't losing anything by not upgrading uh in the sense that you know they they didn't have an already working running app out there that they needed to upgrade yeah that's true and i guess it kind of gets back to what you said earlier chuck of like maybe you don't always know i mean i mean obviously you don't always know when you're incurring technical debt, like, you know, your other example that was very good was about the coupling. You know, coupling tends to happen over a period of time without, I mean, obviously, if if we knew that we were putting a dangerous dependency in there, we would probably choose another way mm-hmm. if it was equally easy, you know, and it's, it's that it tends to pile on and pile on until you realize that, oh, for some reason, when I touch this line, this thing over here falls down and dies, you know. And I don't think you intend to get there, um, but it happens over time. So one thing, one thing that worries me is, um, like, how do you tell? How do you tell when you've started adding those types of things to your code base? Like, I mean, I once a, I can tell this sort of stuff, but I don't think there's necessarily any books that have told me how to do it. It's just out of experience. I know, like, well, we don't want to do this or this or you know. How do we educate people to know that, you know, that how do you how do you see these problems? Well, I I, th- I think there's um there's an early adopter payment that you always incur, so so it, you know we're talking about dependencies and the and the debt that you can accrue uh, by being dependent on a, on a on a library or a gem that uh, doesn't get upgraded to run on Ruby one nine, for instance. So when you start using that thing, you have to evaluate the 
the benefit that that gem is going to provide you, oh, somebody else wrote this code, I can use it really quickly, I don't have to spend two weeks writing that for myself, that, you know, that's a great, great, uh, that's a great thing, but you also have to weigh that against how reliable is the source of this gem mm -hmm. and are they going to support it over time. So there, there were, you know, there were a lot of really cool flash in the pan plugins that came out for Rails that aren't supported anymore. Mm -hmm. And and if and like James, if you were working on a project that was dependent on a bunch of these plugins, you know, what do you do? <laughs> mostly, I I usually in most cases I've rewritten them. Um, just that, like you, I guess you kind of be surprised. Like at one point, it was using feed tools, and feed tools doesn't work on one nine. And I pulled it down and fiddled with it a little to see how how tough it was going to be to get it running on one night. I took a first pass at it, you know, in like an hour and, and ran it, and it, it was still having problems that I couldn't totally see. So I decided this was, you know, a dead end. I didn't want to be stuck with all that debt. So then I went back and tried to figure out what the code was really using feed tools for. And I found out that eh, actually it was a pretty trivial thing. I loaded the Ruby standard RSS library, I wrote about eight lines of code, and it was problem solved. You know, it was it was not a, a difficult need. So, so that that probably ought to be a lesson to us. You know that uh, you know using a plugin that you know does all this thing is great if you need that. But you know if if you don't need that, you know if you can get away with the eight lines of code, maybe you should try that first because you know you might incur less technical debt long term. Yeah. One one thing that I want to point out, um, directly answering Aaron's question is is how do you recognize you're adding technical debt? Um, I think the thing that comes to mind for me because I, I couldn't think of any specific instances, you know, where you're saying if if you're doing this or if you're seeing this, and that means you're adding this type of technical debt. More, it seems that when you start to feel the pain. When, when you're starting to pay the cost initially, that's when you start to recognize I have this technical debt. So for example, if if every time I do a git pull and I'm getting, uh, my tests aren't passing anymore, that that's telling me you have some technical debt here. And the technical debt is in my process, not in my code. And the technical debt is I need a CI machine that tells the other developer on my team, idiot, run your tests and make sure they pass before you commit. You know, or, you know, there, there are a lot of other things like that, but you don't recognize those things as things that you're going to have to pay off until you in, and you make that initial payment. You know, I was working over in this section of code and this other section of code fell apart. You know, that's your first indication that, that there's something there's some correlation in the code that you didn't see in your mind. And so then you start looking for the technical debt and find a way to either decouple them or to define the relationship between them. And I don't know about you guys, but like when I'm running into those scenarios like Chuck's talking to, then I always feel like the little orphan that has to go back to the business and ask for another bowl because, you know, oh, we have this problem now and sorry to bring this to you, you know, but, you know, we're going to have to fix this, you know. Well, I think there's something to be said for that, too, because. If you have good business people, because usually it's the business people that are going to say, oh, you want to push the timeline or you're going to need more money or whatever. And in those cases, if you have good people that understand the process, then you should be able to explain to them this is an unforeseen thing. It will solve this problem in this way. And they're usually good with that. Um, if they're not, that's when you run into the problem. And I don't know a terrific way of solving that 
You were going to say something, Josh? Yeah, I I was going to say what... Well, I think it's worth us maybe taking a minute to talk about what is not technical debt. Because I, I've heard us talking about a lot of things that are maybe technical debt and maybe not, and it depends on your perspective. And I think that some people talk about technical debt as just being you know, bad code or you know, crappy mm-hmm. engineering or something like that. And I, and the, you know, I think there's a distinction to be made. So, you know, you know, you know, from my perspective, technical debt is, you know, it's, it's a deficiency in your software or, or maybe your process, you know, but, but there's some technical, you know, there's something, some technical aspect that you want to be better, but it's not. And, you know, it's a deficiency. It's something, that's take, it's something that's making you take more time than should have yeah. for that, the particular thing that you need to do. Right. Yeah. So, so, but, 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 but there are things that, like in, in, real, in, in the financial world, there are things that you just make a payment and you're done with it. And then there's other things that you have to keep paying off over time. And that's the thing that I think of as technical debt. It's the things that, that they come back to haunt you over time. Your interest-only loan? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <but. laughs> so, so what are some counterexamples then to technical debt, Josh? Um, well, so Josh, you're saying that you don't think just playing bad code is technical debt? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, if, there, if there's something that uh, is essentially all walled off, like the, if you're using a gem or something and it, it internally it may have a lot of technical debt and be and be hard to um, to advance the gem or develop it or fix bugs or or what have you. But that's internal to that gem. It's not in your own project, and it's not something that you have to worry about. So, well, but, but what if they? Have... Well, right. up to a point. Up to a point. But the but it's not something that you're going to be making payments on. It's not making your life more difficult being a client of that gem. As, as long as they don't ask you to add a new feature to it, that's really difficult to do, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that you're crossing a line at that point, though. That, but, 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 and, and it can even happen in your own code base. I've worked on code bases where there were, there were parts of the code base that just you didn't want to touch it. And th- I think that's, you could look at that as technical debt, but it's, you just keep avoiding it, and it doesn't really... In, impact your velocity. It doesn't affect your ability to add new features. It's just some isolated subsystem of the application. So you just ignore it, and it's not yeah. really debt. So if you have, if you have, I, th- I think what you're trying to say is if you have good abstractions between things, if you have good abstractions in your code base, then you can sort of relegate off this little, you know, keep keep the keep the cancer from growing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to bring that up earlier and then forgot that. You know, you know what are the ways of of preventing things from turning into technical debt? I think those abstractions are important for that. Yes, good good refactoring and good abstract. You know, separating your code into good abstractions is probably the best way to do it. But still, I mean, it, I mean, it can still leak into your system. Like if you, you know. If you ever need to do something a little bit different with that gem or with that API, then you're kind of you know you're kind of screwed. But you know at least you have good abstractions there, so you can define you can define that where your code meets that other code. You can define it well. I think that is the best way to 
prevent it from spreading. Mm-hmm. So, Aaron, you talked earlier about, you know, are there books that teach us how to avoid these kind of things and stuff like that? And my knee-jerk reaction when you said that was refactoring would be the book I would I would name. And um, then you just mentioned it again right there. I, I think maybe that is in a way that, that by, you know, that refactorings are basically based around, you know, removing couplings and things like that, building better abstractions for the sake of walling off pieces of code, right? Yeah, but you have, so so the problem is like, the problem with that is like you're dealing with the problem afterwards, right? Like I, I'm talking about, I'm talking about saying, how do you, like, how do you convince other people that good abstractions are a good thing, right? Like we we can say that to each other, and it's really easy because we know ah down the line we're gonna have to be paying you know paying a cost for this, and we know what that pain is. Like how do you how do you teach someone that pain without them actually going through it? Well, I I don't know that you can. I mean that that's one of the things. There are a lot of things that I've gone through with junior developers where I'd explain to them this is why you this is the way you want to do it. This is why you want to do it, and ultimately they do it that way. But then you know a few years down the line, you know, they come back and they say, you remember when you told me to do this this way? Well, I did this other one this other way, and oh my gosh. You know, I, I just, I, I haven't seen any substitute for it. I mean, some people will take your word for it, but most people, it doesn't become second nature until they have suffered through it at least once. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think that's even realistic. I mean, and there may even be scenarios where, you know, I mean, if I'm doing quick and dirty scripting, then I'm not usually caring about the level of abstraction, you know, and, and you know, for me to sit down and write it right probably doesn't buy me anything for a script I'm going to run a couple of times and then throw away, you know. So, but I was going to ask, maybe maybe there's a different way to come at this problem. Aaron, can you name any technical debt that's currently in Rails? Uh... <laughs> Probably <laughs> migrations. Yeah, my my uh, yes, migrations. There you go. That's a good one. So you know how how did that get there? Was that a conscious choice? I mean, it, it was a conscious choice to add the feature, obviously. You know, but but I don't think they realized at the time what they were doing. You know, or, or what they were incurring. Maybe. It, and I think you're right about that. Can people still hear me, or, or yes. am I gone? Yes, yeah, okay. everything got really quiet, so I think everyone just muted at the same time. Yeah, that, that <laughs> happened to me a few times, and yeah, it was the same thing. It was like, oh, <laughs> oh no. Okay, so so um, the I think you're right, James. That you know, migrations. You know, people in good faith said, okay, we're going to build this feature, and we're going to build it the best way we know how. But unfortunately, there were some. I think better ways of doing it that you know, if they had done things in a little more object-oriented way or used some of the more standard patterns, you know, if they had had things be class, uh, instance methods instead of class methods, for for say, um, then it would make testing easier. It would make the implementation of the code easier. Dealing with engines would have been easier. And all that stuff. And I've I've hit my head for for many weeks against the migration code in there. And so I know a lot of these issues. That's why I brought it up. But it it's like, you know, it's like Chuck was saying that it's it comes with experience. The, so just like, you know, just like an inexperienced financial person might end up buying a, a bridge in, in Brooklyn because they're 
naive about that. I think that uh, developers who aren't as experienced don't notice that they're causing that they're writing code that might cause trouble in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think we all uh, have different experience. And so some of the things that would be second nature to James or Aaron or you, Josh, um, you know, to me, I just I just go full speed ahead and, you know, I wander off the cliff because I didn't know it was there because I hadn't I hadn't made that mistake yet. And and I'm sure there are other things that, you know, each of you guys do that the other of you, um, you know, knows better. And uh, yeah, it, it all comes down to what you've been through and and uh, what your experience is and what you've seen and, and learned from there. Right. As you're getting enough experience, then you're driving over the cliff on purpose. <laughs> as long as you have airbags. All right. Well, I think this is a good time to, to end it and uh, go into the picks. Um, I, I explain this every week. I'm going to explain it again. Uh, basically, the picks are just things that we've uh, picked up, learned, or experienced that we that we like that's made our life easier and uh so you know they can be code related or non-code related and uh i'm gonna go ahead and let aaron start us off this week yeah uh, well i think this one will be good for our topic um probably a book that if you haven't read this book you need to buy it now is um working effectively with legacy code by michael feathers uh, this will help you get out of technical debt and it's awesome. It changed my life with regard to software engineering. So get it. All right. Is that everything? Yes. Okay. James? So I'm uh, not recommending useful programming stuff this time, but I've become obsessed with three letters by some strange condition. So the letters are S, G, and U. And it turns out that in January, I found this podcast that I got hooked on called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And it took me like six months to catch up on it. It's usually shortened to SGU. And uh, it's a podcast for skeptics. So if you like hearing about oh cool science studies about things like UFOs or acupuncture or things like that, you know, what... What's what's true that we believe is true, and what's you know really the science doesn't back it up. Things like that. Um, it's a really cool podcast. A lot of fun. Great, great cast that uh, does it. And actually, the the idea, one of the ideas I had for running this podcast is based on that one. Is their panel discussion of the topics and stuff. Um, so that's one. And I got obsessed with that and, and went all the way through it. And then I got done with that recently. And. Uh, my new thing I've been hooked on is Stargate Universe. I've been streaming that over Netflix, which is usually shortened to SGU. So for some strange reason, anything SGU I seem to really like. Um, but uh, Stargate Universe is a sci-fi series, um, and uh, it's very good. You know, these uh, people flung way out into the far end of the galaxy. You know the story. They're, they're way out there and trying to get home and stuff, but... Uh, Really good character development and great show. So I'm recommending The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, uh, Stargate Universe, and anything else that's uh, abbreviated as SGU. All right. Josh, go ahead. Okay. I have uh, um, my pick this week. I have one pick this week. And uh, for, 
for most people, mo I think most people listening were not lucky enough to be at GitHub's CodeConf in April. Uh, it was a, a really great conference. I had a great time there. But the, my favorite talk of the conference was uh, Coda Hale. He did a talk called uh, Metrics, Metrics Everywhere. And it was such an awesome talk that uh, I got him to come to Pivotal Labs while I was still there. And he gave a, one of the lunchtime tech talks. And it got recorded on video. So that video is now up on the, on the web at pivotallabs.com slash talks. And uh, it, it's the kind of talk that I think every software developer really needs to watch. Because it's, it's about uh, how, to, how to create business value you know, how, you know, how to create code that has value as opposed to debt <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, has, um, and, and how to make decisions about your code based on actual data rather than guesses. So it's a, it's a, a great talk and uh, I, I encourage everybody to spend you know, a few minutes watching it. I think it's about 40, it's 46 minutes and you will, uh, it's worth every second. Awesome. Thanks. Um, my pick this week is uh, an app for the Mac. It's called Wonderlist. It's W-U-N-D-E-R-L-I-S-T. And it's it's a to-do list app. And you can share your to-do lists and things like that. And I've, I found it extremely useful for me to just kind of uh, keep track of all of the stuff that I have going on. And I've also created a list for my virtual assistant and so then I can see when things get done so I can see when my podcast episodes get posted or when, you know, somebody that she needed to email for me got emailed or things like that uh, because she marks them off the list. And then I can go and see, you know, what what things she says she's done and I can, you know, check up on the ones that are critical to me. And uh, anyway, that that's something that I've been using recently. And uh, anyway, that's uh, that's pretty much all I have. So uh, we'll cue the music, and uh, just thank you guys for coming again. Uh, this week we had on our panel once again, just to uh, remind you who they are, we had Aaron Patterson. Uh, he is a Rails committer and core committer, and he blogs at tenderlovemaking.com. Thanks for coming, Aaron. We also had on our panel James Edward Gray. He is the author of the TextMate book, uh, Ruby Quiz, and the best of Ruby Quiz, and the Faster CSV library. So thanks for coming, James. You're welcome. And uh, Josh Susser, uh, one of the organizers of the Golden Gate Ruby Conference, GoGaRuko. Um, he's on Twitter at Josh Susser. Um, he's also uh, contributed to Rails, and he blogs at blog.hasmanythrough.com. Thanks for coming, Josh. Uh, no problem. Great to be here. And I'm Charles Max Wood from teachmetocode.com, and uh, we will catch you all in another week. Uh, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com, and uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We really, really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. All right. Woo!